1: Irving was six years old when her agriculturist missionary father took her family to Haiti. She came of age in Haiti and left when she was 15 in 1991. She returned in 2010 after a devastating earthquake reduced Haiti to rubble. After that, she returned every spring for quite a while. Her philosophy regarding our human desire to be of help is summed up by the Australian indigenous artist and activist Lilla Watson, who has said, if you've come to help me, then you are wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up in mine, then let us work together. Irving's family had moved to Haiti to try to be of help but instead they learned about their own limitations. Apricot Irving currently lives in the woods outside Portland, Oregon, but has lived in Haiti, Indonesia, and the United Kingdom. She returned to Haiti in the spring of 2010 to cover the earthquake for the radio program This American Life. She's a recipient of the Rona Jaffe Foundation Writers Award and an Oregon Literary Fellowship. Her renowned oral history project, BoiseVoices.com, is a collaboration between youth and elders to record the stories of the neighborhood in the midst of gentrification. She's the author of The Gospel of Trees, a memoir. Join us for the next hour as we go deep into the entanglements of relationship with the land and culture of Haiti with a missionary's daughter, apricot irving i'm justine willis toms i'll be your host welcome to new dimensions apricot welcome thank you for having me it's my pleasure i would love to start off with before we actually get into your story to help us orient ourselves into the history of haiti Not all of us really know a lot about that history. So if you could help us understand some of the deep uh, history and important history.
2: Sure. As I describe in the book, I quite enjoyed being able to weave in bits of the history over the course of the book. And as I say there, this new world was discovered many thousands of years before Europeans arrived. And it was settled from the South and from the the West Coast of Central America. And people came and eventually cultures merged and formed uh, one that was called the Taino peoples. And they described themselves as the good or noble people. And they were there on the island of Aitzi, which means mountainous, um, when Columbus arrived in 1492. And he had already come to some of the smaller islands and had taken forcibly some of the residents of those smaller islands as his translators. So there was rudimentary conversation back and forth between the Taino peoples and Columbus and his men. And he felt very welcomed by the Taino peoples. They brought him gifts, flecks of gold, spices. Um, Things started to go awry when one of his ships, the Santa Maria, ran aground just outside of what's now Cape Haitian, And he was forced to leave behind 39 men. Those 39 men were to start the, the conquest and have piles of gold waiting when Columbus returned with more men to lay claim to the island and settle there permanently. And that was just kind of the beginning of the unraveling of things not at all going as planned. Columbus was followed by many more colonizers, and there's so much of that jagged history uh, the Taino people suffered from their their garden plots being overrun by brought in cattle that gone feral and destroying their their land. Um, deforestation began in earnest. Huge hardwood trees were carted off back to Europe. And then Columbus and, and Spanish conquest was followed by arrivals from other European nations. The French eventually, took control over the western half of the island, what then became known as Haiti or Saint-Domingue, and the, the Spanish retained control of the other half of the island, which became the Dominican Republic. And it was this moment where Dominican Republic was allowed to be somewhat fallow. There was some cattle, but the larger, more profitable conquests were in the mainland, the silver mines. And so Haiti, under French rule, was intensively farmed and yet more deforestation and sugar mills and coffee and indigo. And at that moment in time, Haiti was the wealthiest colony in the New World because of this intense exploitation of mm-hmm. the land and its peoples. And the Taino workforce, as they suffered under disease and, and slavery, they were replaced by Africans brought in forcibly from many parts of Africa. And and again, that, that deforestation, the brutality of slavery. Um, and so the Haitian people over many hundreds of years... Um, emerged as a culture, as a language. um, and, And eventually, the first and only successful slave revolt in the history of the world threw off the French rule in 1804. And 60 or more years before slavery was outlawed in our country, slavery was finished in Haiti. And unfortunately, they suffered politically because of it. The U.S., among many other nations, refused to recognize them politically. France unbelievably demanded reparations. The former slaves had to pay their former masters to be recognized. It's such a devastating history. And yet you sense throughout that broken current this resilience and strength of the Haitian people.
1: So that uh, that's so helpful, hmm. Apricot, to help put everything in context. So, here you are. Some of your story now. You're you're a very young girl. You're six years old. You're living with your family, and and not exactly luxury in <laughs> Idlewild, California. So you can desc- can you describe a little of your life that it was before you left for Haiti.
2: Sure. Well, it it may not have been luxury, but it it felt luxurious. We had a tiny little one-room cabin in the mountains. It was 10 foot by 12 foot, and there was a pit toilet out back. And dad was a forest ranger. So we lived outside on the porch under the trees. We'd come home with bags of library books, and mom would play her auto harp and sing and we'd have campfires and take showers down at the state park campground a couple times a week and it was a great life as a kid and that was during the summer in the hot months in the winter when the desert was cooler we'd go back down to my grandparents' state ranch and we lived on a little trailer just down the hill from my grandparents' trailer. and. My dad worked long hours in the date ranch, and then he and my mother also had started the small organic vegetable business. They called it Palm Shadow Produce in another little corner of the the eighty acres. I think it was nice, nice.
1: And then, he, then for some reason, he synchronistically got called to do... He wasn't so much a preacher.
2: No, no, not at all. So, he got
1: called to a missionary work.
2: He was recruited to run an agricultural center in the north of Haiti for a year. They were looking for someone to step in for a year while the real missionary went on furlough. And so my parents were recruited by people that knew them and said, oh, you have the requisite pioneer spirit to go and... um, figure this out, land in a place without the language. And in all that history I just described, we didn't know when we touched down in Haiti for the first time. So we just kind of ventured into it with a great deal of curiosity, but not a lot of knowledge.
1: Right. And in fact, you describe in the book, it's so wonderful, the first time you're on an airplane is (laughs) when you're going there. You flew first, I guess, to... um, Florida. Florida.
2: And we talk about it in the cassette tapes. We visited the fanciest McDonald in the whole world, <laughs> oh, <my. laughs> which indicates a bit of our naivety. <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. So you're picked up and deposited now in in Haiti. And it's a north part of the island, quite a distance from Port-au-Prince, who's the capital of Haiti,
2: if the roads were smooth and paved, it would not be a terribly long journey. But with potholes in the roads and um, single track up through mountains, it it does take quite a while to get from the capital in the south up to the north.
1: Your father, his main interest is our trees, and that's the name of your book, The Gospel of Trees. i you know, I was thinking, oh, what does that have to do with Haiti? But it's really about your, your whole family configuration, which was not always easy. It it was and you, you write about that, lovingly write about it, but with a lot of truth. And it, it was very interesting to to read that and to understand what you're grappling with. And I'd love for you to share a little bit of when you've landed now with your two younger sisters, two younger sisters. your mother Flip,
2: mm-hmm. your
1: father John, Meadow and Rose, and yourself, Avricade, and your father and your mother. And so you land and... Um, how it compared to being in Idlewild?
2: Well, our lives in the States, both up in the mountains and down the desert, were quite lonely, secluded, the edge of wild space. And Haiti, the wild space is rich and alive in a comparable but very different way. But then we we're surrounded by people everywhere walking alongside of the road. You wake up in the morning and people want to shake your hand and ask you how you slept, how your family's doing. It's a very um, and anim- animated interpersonal existence. And, and I think... I instinctively responded to that energy and, and was really drawn to it. And so there was all of this to discover. There were lizards on the walls in the dining room with would puff up their throats. There were these incredible rainstorms. And sometimes you'd see people holding giant banana leaves over their heads. And the camion bus horns, these bugle calls that would erupt down the street as the buses thundered past and we'd get on. My mom was quite adventurous and so we'd get on her and her little girls into the back of these camions, crowd in and go to the market in Capation.
1: We'll talk more about that in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Apricot Irving and she's the author of The Gospel of Trees, a memoir. And if you want to know more about her work and Look look up all the information about her. You can go to her website, apricotirving.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with apricot irving by the way i love your name apricot (laughs) irving i just it's just a delicious name i've I've never heard it before and i just i love saying it and thank you uh thank your parents for i don't know
2: i always get complimented and my parents are the ones that chose it so i always feel like i I need to turn and tell them all the compliments that this name receives great
1: Apricot Irving is the author of The Gospel of Trees, a memoir. And we're talking about here she is six years old with her sisters, your youngest sister is really quite a toddler at Mm -hmm. that time. And, And just this new, fresh place. But one of the things being kind of associated with this missionary work, there's a separation. There's like a divide there which maybe your parents weren't really prepared for or understood and certainly couldn't help you with it. So if you could describe a little bit of that divide.
2: Yeah, and it it was something that came as a growing awareness quite soon. You know, we had come from a world where it felt like we were more or less equals among, you know, our classmates or other kids we might run into. And suddenly in this new world, there was a deference that we were treated with often, especially in those early years, that we didn't earn. And and that was discomforting. The missionary home that we eventually moved into um, was a modest little home um, with a yard around it, but The Haitian pastors that would come to speak with my father would knock at the gate and not enter and wait for one of us to come and let them in. And I couldn't imagine them being afraid of the dogs. They were much nicer than the dogs that lived under my grandma's porch in the desert. But but there was this uncomfortable awareness that, that we held power. We had been given power and we maintained it. For example, there was a tricycle that had been left by the missionary son, and we had watched play on and around the tricycle. And my little sister, who is the gentlest um, she was then, is still, tried out something that she had observed, which was when there was a Haitian boy sitting on the tricycle, she said, «De son, get off». And he paused, and he looked at her, and he got off. And here was this new dynamic that we didn't know how to navigate. And my mom, who saw it, came rushing out the front door of the house. And you can't do that. He's a kid, too. He, He's a person, Like and had him get back on. But it was just this profound discomfort around it. And so... So it was like unearned power. Yes. That... Uh, but, but. It was privilege. Privilege. We didn't know what to call it. We didn't know how to navigate it. We didn't know how to step away from it, distance ourselves from it. But there it was, and we were playing into this old colonial pattern without knowing how to escape it.
1: And your father, now he was not an easy person, (laughs) was he? I mean, he had some complexities. And one thing that you write about that would emerge suddenly would be some great anger where he would toss something or and so you you had to be pretty vigilant in in ways of watching his mood because you it might pop out this frustration that he was feeling. So I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit.
2: Sure. And I think that came more and more with time. I think in the early years there was a sense of hopefulness. We had come imagining that we were bringing hope and and we thought it would be so easy to help Haiti and, and offer hope to the Haitian people. And it was as time went on and one project after another that we had designed and set up fell apart in unanticipated ways. There might be a torrential rainstorm that could wash away a month's worth of work replanting seedlings and suddenly they're all gone. 12 inches of rain in a single night. I mean, it's hard to imagine anything withstanding the force of that. Or a goat that would sneak out and get into the garden and eat all of the seedling trees. And so there were plenty of causes for frustration, but especially when I was a teenager, And my father was working on his own. He would hike out into the hills with a makutsi full of seeds that he'd collected from local trees and his Haitian Bible with all the verses about trees and reforestation marked because those were the ones that he would read. Um, Those were the times when he took in the stories of the farmers that he got to know. And to see a family with six kids sitting around a three-rock fire and the only thing they have to eat is uh, a handful of bell peppers, he took in that grief and he didn't know what to do with it. And so when he'd get home, it would explode in anger over something. So it's like the
1: unprocessed in some ways, yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: And I think that when we see ourselves as someone else's rescuer, that's heavy, and it's not.
1: And when we when we have
2: no capacity
1: to really be of help, we just see the suffering and and
2: and, and it's and we can't be of help. And that we see it as our role to help, rather than that we're all in this together. And, right. And that isolation you mentioned, we still kept ourselves quite isolated. And and so I, my observation of Haitian culture is that it's one where emotions are lived out in the in the context of community life is lived outdoors when you're angry people know it when there's a loss people know it and share it with you there's a a sense of emotions take place in the public space and i think as american missionaries we brought that kind of private um self-contained sensibility, we pulled our grief inward and, and and held on to it and didn't know how to share and enter into the communal experience of grief or joy that, that we were in some ways apart from.
1: I'm just thinking, as you're saying that, I'm thinking about my experience of um uh let's say a, a white uh predominantly white caucasian uh church congregation episcopal or presbyterian congregation All right i'm in alabama at the time and you know going to to that and maybe even attending a funeral in in one of those situations and um Then going to a black church, I belonged to a a gospel choir at the time, and sometimes we'd be asked to go to one of these backwoods sort of churches that would meet in this clapboard church, and there would be a funeral, and we'd be asked to, to participate in that. And so here we are now in this black culture, and... There is wailing and just there is such emotion going on and, and emoting and, and and just no holding back. It's so powerful and uh, just powerful is all I can say. And And there was such a distance from this white church in town, so to speak, and then going out in the woods and here's this black church.
2: When anyone would... Die at the missionary hospital and we lived on the same property as the hospital, you would hear these intense sounds of wailing. And it was a crowd that would carry the mourners and join in and, and the sorrow was shared. And I remember as a child feeling so embarrassed by that strong expression of emotion. I didn't know how to do it. And, and now I think this is such a healthier cultural expression than what we demonstrated. There's, um, I believe he's a Belgian psychotherapist, Basil van der Kork. He's written a whole gorgeous, insightful book on trauma, The Body Keeps Score. His analysis is that European culture, we're post-alcoholic, um, and that our, our our great impediment is that We have such a narrow band of emotions that we're allowed to express publicly. Anger is one of them. Um, But otherwise, we need the permission of alcohol being present to be able to show our emotions. And that the other cultures around the world that allow emotion to be embodied and shared in public spaces, there's a much greater emotional um, health that's represented.
1: You would retreat... Uh, sometimes you you called um, the rooftop I think of the schoolhouse was your cathedral and sometimes you would retreat I mean I, I just can't imagine I I have the feeling that you were coming into puberty while you were there but it was almost like you were on your own when it came to that and how you find your way through being, somewhat isolated from possibly schoolmates and and, and others in the culture. I, it just, I can't imagine. So here you're up in your, your retreat up on the rooftop of the school.
2: <laughs> it's true. Somebody had left a ladder leaning against the side of it. And it's a flat roof, designs so that they could add a second story later, and it kind of has bits of rebar hanging off of it and little puddles sometimes after rain. And I would climb up the ladder and it was this only place on the compound I could find to be alone and and that, again that's so European of me to want solitude rather than connection but I did crave it I was a writer since as long as I can remember and I needed time to be alone with my thoughts and, and the beauty of it I, there were these trees that grew up over the roof of the school these breadfruit trees and the royal palms and the bamboo whispering and it was such a place of of solitude and beauty for me.
1: Something just struck me in your writing. You have said uh, beauty was a luxury that, as a missionary kid, I had been taught to mistrust, mm-hmm. and that that really popped out at me because I think when you went back years later, and I would love for you to share what it what it felt like to then. I mean. It was complex and difficult and you thought you you wanted to leave and while you while you were going through it, but when you returned and you see the mountains again for the first time and see these natural landscapes and the beauty of them, what was that like for you?
2: It felt overwhelming and I think it's this reminder so much ecologically has been lost in Haiti and yet what remains is still so magnificent and worth protecting and worth admiring and taking in deeply. And, And I think I was struck by that then as a child and still every time I go back that Haiti is a place of immense beauty and you see it in the landscape but you also see it in the strength of people in difficult situations creating beauty with what they have hiking up once um, um, an hour up above a small town into a village where dad used to do reforestation and walking with a young Haitian man that was accompanying us and there on the side of a house made of clay was a lighter color of clay painted in patterns of flowers, and intricate designs for the beauty of it.
1: Beautiful, beautiful. I'm here with Apricot Irving, and she's the author of The Gospel of Trees, a memoir. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, apricotirving.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine willis toms You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Apricot Irving. She's the author of The Gospel of Trees, a memoir. Apricot, there's one story that you write about in in the book and give some attention to, and this is a story of a young infant, actually, at the time, uh, T. Marcel, who is later called Sherry Lean. That was a very difficult relationship that your father had with her, and can you describe some of that?
2: Of course, she is the girl on the cover. And um, I was talking with my 10 year old earlier this week about something that had happened at school and about regret and how we all have things in life that we regret. And this jealousy, intense jealousy, that I had for T. Marcel when my father brought her home, we assumed her to be left abandoned at the missionary hospital. Um, she was in very, um, very dire health. She was nine months old, um, and she had neither hair or teeth. She couldn't sit up. She weighed less than 11 pounds. She was so fragile in her health. And we'd nearly, the hospital had nearly lost her several times. Her legs were so thin that they had to perform emergency intravenous cutdowns to give her an IV, um, and the missionary hospital was put together, you know, on a wing and a prayer. It was very erratic, the income sources from supporters in the U.S., and, and they didn't want to turn anyone away. And so there were sometimes two or three kids in a crib, and it was impossible for the nurses to give attention to all of them. So my father, among the other missionaries, would kind of do this improvised foster care. We'd bring a child home They'd get to play with us in the evenings. I'd describe it as my dad wanted us to shout some life back into her. And he loved this little girl. And I was eight years old and so jealous of his lost attention. And so I, I write about that just intense jealousy for a parent and their their vision, their uncompromising sense of purpose, and as a child, what it feels like to be... Left loose, left adrift. And I think it was as a child that coming into the realization that if we approach the world so that we're taught to see these huge looming sorrows on the horizon and therefore taught to believe that our own small sorrows should not exist, that we need to turn from them in shame, it gets tangled up fast. And and I think that was me fighting against that philosophy. And, and now as an adult, I still want to push against that philosophy because I think that the truth is that to be human is to experience loss, is to experience sorrow. And so with my own kids, I want them to understand what it is to hold sorrow, what we do with it. Do we turn it against ourselves? Do we turn it against others? Do we transform it somehow into something greater than itself? I didn't have the resources to do that at that young age. So at eight years old, I was just mad (laughs) that she got my parents' attention, my dad particularly. And then again, at 14, 15, We saw her again. She wasn't, as it turns out, abandoned, and she had returned with her father to her home, and we went and tracked her down on Father's Day at my father's request, and I was again so mad that my dad would... Give all this love and attention to this girl that he wasn't related to. And what about us? and And I think it was this moment that kind of encapsulated all the tensions within our family. Dad wanted to make a difference in the world. And in some ways, we slowed him down. and And there was some resentment in him against us, isn't this? Uh,
1: I, I could see when you were writing about that, I really kind of could feel. In my own life, my devotion for so many years and so many decades and so many years as being a mother uh and the way I was split mm-hmm. between my work in the world and being a mother, I could see your father had this too, and how it could be you could be very resentful because he had an extraordinary dedication and passion about his work and being of help and, and reforestation of this island that had been so devastated and, and seeing it just knocked down, even seeing that the, the Haitian people didn't really understand
2: reforestation. Well, there were some that did. I mean, I think One of the things my father did well was he found people, Haitian farmers, who had come up with some innovative new way of approaching reforestation. And he would recognize it for what it was. Like there was a man named Raseus who had realized that if you planted a tiny seedling next to a banana shoot, that the banana, it would appear to draw up the water closer to the surface. It would shelter out some of the brutal tropical heat on that little seedling. And lo and behold, the seedling would flourish and soon it would overtake it. And he was able to keep seedlings alive in a way that no one else could. And so dad from that point forward would always tell everyone he met about and this innovation. And, and likewise, his friend Zoe, who I think in some ways is the hero of the book, this Haitian farmer who came up with many innovative ways and learned and integrated the, um, the techniques that he was given by others who came like my father and, um, and so he successfully transformed his whole um his whole village, the, the surrounding mountainsides in this really extraordinary way. But of course there were many that didn't as well. And, yes. and I think there's an urgency to to deep poverty that when you have such a narrow margin to survive on, and suddenly your kids get sick, or you want to send them off to to a better school, or there's a funeral to pay for, that trees can be cut down, sold for charcoal, transported down the steep mountain paths. The cycle of poverty can, can be very Um, hard to escape I can
1: think of that in uh, uh, Mexico with the monarch butterflies that depend on the oil mill trees and they need to be a certain thickness as far as how many are in an area for these butterflies to survive through the winter in their, their pods that they hang in and yet the local peasants are doing the same thing they're cutting down those trees because they're in living in poverty,
2: and it, there, it's very difficult. It's very difficult, and and this deep inequity that exists in our world, where the world's resources are not distributed equally, is something that we have to consider. I mean, there were centuries when Haiti's wealth left Haiti and went to build cathedrals in Europe. And the trees and the coffee and the indigo was sold in Europe and built streets and universities and museums. And we still benefit from that today. There was wealth that was taken and redistributed elsewhere. That just
1: reminds me of something else that you go into in the book. And now I'm going to skip way ahead and... In the time of the earthquake and when lots of NGOs, nonprofit government organizations poured in help into Haiti because it was so devastating. I mean, uh, I think more than 200,000 homes and businesses were just collapsed, you know, boom, gone. And hundreds of thousands of people died and um, so all this money and this help came pouring in. And I just think of one thing that happened that just kind of points out how when trying to be of help, are we really helping, is that um, there were all these jars of peanut butter that that were brought in, which indicated something. Can, I
0: yeah, see you shaking a, your head.
2: there was a Haitian economist, a man named Daniel Jean-Louis, who thinks about this um, at at length, and he was the one that pointed out to me, and I mention it in the book, about how these donated jars of peanut butter after the earthquake represented well-meaning intentions of people trying to get protein to the Haitian people. But as he pointed out, look, money enters the economy every time a transaction takes place. So those jars of peanut butter... Somewhere the peanuts were sourced, maybe in Kenya, maybe in the American South. So money entered the economy at that place where the peanuts were bought. And then they were bought and made into the peanut butter. And then they, money entered the economy at the place where the jars were bought, in the U.S. And then they get shipped to Haiti and given away, which means that the Haitian farmers who grow peanuts can no longer sell their crops because they've been undercut, no money enters the Haitian economy at that point. It's just donated. And the peanut butter is one example, but there are many in that category. It just it's incumbent on us to ask lots of hard questions when we're going in trying to help, so that in our desire to help, we don't do harm
1: uh, I, I I wrote something down. It was kind of it, it's kind of a compilation of something that. Dr. Steve James uh, said, both in your your special, This American Life, and also in the book, and I, I wrote this down, I said, this is the challenge in building deep democracy in a culture to be truly inclusive and to support healthy growth through diversity and foster compassion and justice, fairness, equality, dignity, takes time and the building of mutual history. It's not an easy road. It goes against the grain of the American fix-it. I love that. The American fix-it culture. It is building of a more participatory decision-making culture rather than a top-down decisions made by a few people. It is more of a dialogue instead of a monologue, it helps people to feel empowered. So that's what we're talking about. It's like to really be of help, it takes more time. It's not easy. And, and you talk about in the book, um, at some point, your father went back, and he's gone back many times, and, and he was visiting these cooperative communities and this was kind of a model of how things work. They were not easy. It was Dr. James because he was he couldn't do the hospital in the way that he, they did it before in the missionary style of top down. Okay, we're just going to do it this way. He had to do it different way. Oh, my goodness. It's
2: harder. It's harder. Um, the missionary hospital was a place that he left um, intentionally. This is Dr. James. Dr. Steve James. And when he came back, it was to support these smaller Haitian-run clinics. And And the difficulty was that at a place like the hospital, you could have x-rays, you could have overnight stay, you could have IVs. All of that could happen under one roof. And in these smaller clinics that he's there supporting, you'd have to drive from one location to the other over dirty, dusty, uh, potholed roads. Um, so it Things are slower, but what you're doing is you're building a sustainable model for for medical care. That that they can sustain themselves.
1: I'm here with Apricot Irving. She's the author of The Gospel of Trees, a memoir. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, apricotirving.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm here with Apricot Irving, and she's the author of The Gospel of Trees, a memoir. She's an agriculturalist missionary daughter who, uh, who spent her formative years in Haiti. Going back to Haiti, there are some very successful models. Uh, I mean, I call them models, very successful activities going on in Haiti that are cooperative villages or communities of some sort. Can you describe them?
2: It was such a privilege to visit this one way up in the mountains, and I'm not going to say its name out of respect for its, um, its autonomy. But it was started 25 years ago or more by a small group of people from the village that were tired of people looking down on them, because they were peasants. And they wanted it to be a place, a community where the kids could go off to the city and be educated and want to come back and be proud of where they were from. That was the the goal of this cooperative. And so they put their heads together and they had a communal garden that People would rotate, all the members would pay a very, very small monthly fee and work in the garden. And when they sold things from that garden, the income would then be used to, for example, send a representative to a class on um, infant care. Because one thing they noticed was that there was a high percentage of kwashiorkor, protein deficiency in children. And they wanted that not to be the case anymore. So they saved their money, sent someone off to this course. They came back with knowledge that then they shared with all of the surrounding villages and were able to drastically reduce, if not you know, do away with kwashiorkor among infants. And so then they just went through and and made priorities of this is what we want to do next. It's a very dry region. So they wanted to have uh, water catchment systems to be able to use every bit of rain that fell. And in that case, they did decide to work with a German not-for-profit organization. But everyone that participated put in some of their own money, the German company then subsidized the remaining cost and together they worked to put this in for all of the homes that wanted it done and it was an incredibly successful model and it was based on this really vigorous democracy that was very Haitian and and the the grief that I felt watching this beautiful thing and the pride in their voices when they described what they had accomplished um, was that at that moment, poised to to be part of the story was this very successful, very renowned American NGO that wanted to come in and work with this thriving community because who wouldn't? Here's all, you can have a success. It's so easy. But this outside NGO had to please the donors. And so they weren't ready to do the slow pace of communal decision-making. And it took three days for some of the members of the group's, um, deciding council to get down from their village and come and be there for the meeting to decide what the terms would be. And so the NGO was saying, well, you know what, if you're not going to take our terms, we'll just walk away. And I just thought, please, please, please don't destroy this beautiful thing that has existed for 25 years without your help. You don't need another story to put on your brochures. Let them be if you can't respect the pace that they move at. Do you
1: know the final outcome of that? Did they walk away, or can you I say? I
2: don't. Oh, okay, that would be worth following yeah. up. On. Yeah, I've yeah. been afraid to. Ask. But
1: it just reminds me that true democracy takes time. Our our U.S. culture is like fix it, do it now, take care of it, go for it, go for the short term. I mean, that's 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 our mentality. If if we click on on a on our computers, if the website doesn't come up within what three fifths of a second, then we're off to another thing. I mean, we're this is our, our, the good thing about us and the bad thing about us. Yeah. There's
2: a quotation, and I need to look up the exact wording of it, but it's from Einstein, and it's something along the lines of that we can't solve a problem by the same thinking that created it. And we're facing real global crises right now in terms of the climate and and this earth that we love shifting beneath us and and we can't continue to approach it in the same way that with the same thinking that led to this problem. We have to learn to listen to each other. We have to listen to people in Haiti and and countries that are we so are used to just railroading right over and saying, no, no, I've got the solution. I know what it needs to fix this.
1: You know, I'm also thinking as you're describing this cooperative that has been so successful and, and how they've been successful and one of the main points that you made in it is that the community itself wanted to be so uh, special in that their kids would come back to it. Because that's one of the big exports, is that once the kids get educated, then they leave and they go off and do jobs somewhere else and they don't come home. And that was a key. And I'm thinking here in the U.S., in these pockets of of poverty, in these, these... ghettoized uh, communities. There's something to be learned here.
2: It would be so interesting to go into places that are used to being looked down on by outsiders and ask, what is it you are proud of? What is it that you value in this place where you live? I think it would be a really interesting question to ask.
1: I think so. I think that's a Very interesting question. It's going down underneath, not making the assumption that
2: we know. This is the problem with arrogance, is that it just bleeds out into our body language, our tone of voice. So many people in visiting a place like Haiti, pity is very close to condescension. It's, you know... There were some really hateful things said about Haiti and countries like Haiti earlier this year. That's and true. it was from such a perspective of profound condescension. But when we look down always with pity, it's not so different that vantage place. It's the looking down. And that's really corrosive. It's it's very deadly. If we want to to work together, we can't afford to look down on each other.
1: Well, I I'm, I'm thinking too of um let's go back to Alice Walker who wrote The Color Purple. And she grew up in um Georgia in what somebody might look as extreme poverty the way she she grew up possibly. But she she was surrounded by beauty. She didn't she felt somebody looking from the outside would have a certain judgment but from the inside what she had valued so highly.
2: And I've spoken with people in Haiti that explain somewhat gently that they've lived in the U.S. and they've chosen to come back to Haiti because what they saw in our country was that we were busy all the time. You're always in your vehicles. There's not people out on the street. You don't have time. Like never in my life would I want to live in such a place. And I think that's... It's a place of a extreme
1: critique. isolation. It is. Really. We really have to force ourselves. I mean, just my coming here today, I was walking past my neighbor's house and 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 she was out in her in her chair out in the sunshine and she spoke to me and I could feel myself having to stop myself and turn to her and have a conversation for as long as it took to say that and I I could feel myself oh I have this interview and I need to get in my car I need to get down on the road and you know you know part of me is all that.
2: But we were talking just before we went on air about the fires that tore through here and the devastation that it brought with it and similarly although we didn't we weren't, didn't suffer the effects of, of so many lost homes. We also were evacuated in the, in the fall from our home outside of Portland. And in moments like that, we're there for each other as neighbors. There is this generosity that suddenly comes to the surface. People in the middle of the night were driving in from other parts of Oregon with horse trailers and through social media saying, I have an empty trailer. Does anyone have animals? I can take them to a place where they'll be safe. I mean, that level of connection and and the generosity that emerges out of crises, I mean, that's something that, that unfortunately the Haitian people have had to learn well from yes. one crisis yes. after another.
1: And our challenge is how to do that every day, that every day that is available to us, that is a choice we can make daily. I can choose to stop and talk to my neighbor. I can choose to be of help with whatever I have, whatever resource I have that's close to me to do something. It's not like we have to change the whole world, but there's a lot that we can do.
2: Agreed. Yeah. When we, I took my sons to Haiti for the first time in 2016. And we had the great privilege to spend time with a man named Miller, who I met for the first time when I was six. And he was such a welcoming, joyful human being. And he was in his early 20s then. He was in his late 50s when... He met my boys and they felt the same welcome immediately. And he was driving and we were on a very steep road and the car engine kept overheating. But without fail, every time we'd pass someone, an older woman with a a basket to take to market, some young kids, um, he'd say, oh, hop in. And they would climb into the back of the pickup. And he taught us. We have to take care of each other. You never know when you'll need help, so that's why you take care of the people around you.
1: Oh, there's so much more that we could share. I just thank you so much, Apricot, for being with us today on New Dimensions.
2: It was my pleasure. Thank you.
1: I've been speaking with Apricot Irving. She's the author of The Gospel of Trees, a memoir. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, apricotirving.com or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3641.
0: New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org and just click the donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine willis toms Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions.